You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Talia and Dylan back with you for 2017, our first grapevine of the year, and it's really great to be hanging out here again. And uh, a lot of people, I think, are going to be heading to their local swimming pool today. It's going to be a scorcher, total fire band day and the like. And uh, uh, heaps of people in regional Victoria in particular will be going to their seasonal pool. There's lots of them, hundreds, in fact. And uh, But many local communities no longer have a pool because they've closed down and many are under threat of closing as well due to councils making the call that they don't want to foot the bill for maintaining them. And to talk about pools and their history and I suppose their role in our communities is Dr Dave Nichols. Uh, he's with a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne and our regular commentator on urban planning and history here on The Grapevine and Elizabeth Taylor from RMIT. And, uh, yeah, it's great to have you both back and welcome back for another year. Thank you. Dave. And Thanks for having Liz. me. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about why so many pools are under threat. I understand. I mean, I know we've had sort of battles locally in in Melbourne for seasonal pools that they say, look, not enough people come, they cost too much to maintain and the like. But this is really a problem around Victoria. A lot of communities have had to fight to save their pools. I'm guessing that... Um, actually, I'm not guessing. I know that there's uh, there's been a big change in the last uh, 20 or 30 years with uh, backyard pools becoming more affordable and available to people and, more, I guess, preferable for a lot of people. There's a little bit of a stigma, perhaps, about a public pool for some people and a lot of, uh, a lot of people would say, well, if I can afford a backyard pool where I can, you know, keep an eye on everything, keep everything under control, then I'll do that. And, and so that means there's a diminished uh, market, so to speak, for public pools. And there's over 200 public pools in Victoria, and as I understand it, about half of those, 120, were built post-war in this kind of phase when it symbolised progress and, and there was particular funding available for memorial pools as well at that time. And then it's a sort of decline, either a decline or a real shift in attitudes towards pools by councils. And, David, you'd know that many of them are actually built by... Not by councils, but by community groups. By people. The people, yes. Yeah, and we, I mean, we saw, we saw that happen with a lot of churches, didn't we? That people built the church and gave it to the, the, the church, uh, yeah. built the church themselves and then donated the land and the building mm. to churches to run them. We had that with pools as well. That's right. It was part of um, being a progressive community and it was kind of showing your community spirit at the same time as you contributed towards the future of your community um people don't do things like that so much anymore because i guess apart from anything else people are more mobile uh so you know you don't buy your little block of land you know in east q or whatever and uh, and expect that you're going to live there and, until you more or less die um and and contribute to the community and you know sort of found the community so to speak you know plant the seeds of what community what the community is going to be like that doesn't happen so much anymore it probably does happen in some instances uh you know in uh, in new areas but you know, it's not the same. And I guess it's one thing to, to build a pool, pool and set one up, but another thing entirely to, to run it, to keep up with the maintenance and, and all the, the money that's required to keep them running. Yeah, that's there's a big sort of, you know, glamour of opening the pool and having it named after you and, and so on, but there's little kind of public reward for maintaining it. But uh, a lot of these campaigns around saving pools show that that sense of community can suddenly, you know, surprisingly erupt when people are actually going to lose the pool but then you have to look at the sort of hard figures about how much it costs to maintain them, especially because because of their age, most of the post-war pools are leaking at this point. So most of the pools that, that I visit are 
you know, they're, they're going to go one of sort of a few paths. One is to be taken over by the community. One is to be closed because they can't maintain it. Another one is to be replaced, you know, by an aquatic centre, the new version, but that's slightly less likely in the country, I think. And there's, there's big famous campaigns in the last few decades. The Fitzroy Pool was saved by, you know, occupiers and by uh, local people uh, inspired, I guess, apart from anything else, by the legend of the... Uh, of the Fitzroy Pool and its association with monkey grip, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'm not diminishing that by saying blah, blah, blah. I, I just say blah, blah, blah a lot. It's uh, filled in the gaps. But um, And then there's the, the sad stories like the Footscray Pool, which, you know, died a death, I guess, about 10 years ago. And uh, even though there was a big community uh, support for that, it was, I guess, in, more or less a victim of council amalgamation and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and we, I mean, we, I, I remember in um, the area near where I live in Coburg, the pool there, the outdoor pool was saved by, you know, a whole lot of members of the community pretty much turning up to every council meeting in zinc and mm. swimming caps and goggles for mm. as long as it took to keep that pool open. But, I mean, what what is a challenge with a lot of these seasonal pools is that they're actually not open that often. A lot of them have yeah. restrictions around temperature and the, if, yeah. if there's not enough people in the pool and what hours they open it's not really clear is it so when you're talking about Coburg then that's sort of my association with it is it's open but it's open in this kind of palliative palliative care kind of mode where I think the council has come up with a compromise where we'll only open it when we know lots of people will be there so they have these uh, temperature policies which you know credit to them probably makes sense on paper but when you're someone that wants to go to the pool and you have to check the temperature guide the day before and if it's not over 24 degrees it won't be open and I've heard extreme ones in Foster it has to be over 26 degrees and the pool only open 10 days in the in the season. And this is, of course, more much more people go when it's hot, but some people like lap swimmers or crazy people like to go when it's not hot. And not so busy as well. Yeah, they're actually quite luxurious when it's not so um, popular. So this, they're kind of part of the reason I like visiting them is also it's good to see when they're popular, but when they're not popular, you put the whole thing to yourself. Yeah, totally. And I suppose there's an argument too, if not that many people are there because they don't know when it's going to open, then there's an argument for closing it because not enough people are using them. Yeah, it's, it's kind of squeezing it though, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, people won't show up on just on impulse or anything. It, it's uh, People, I think, don't like to... Uh, to um, I completely forgot what I was going to say. But it's um, 24 minutes past nine here on Triple R. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. I remember now what I was going to say. People don't like to plan too much in advance they, and they don't, they don't want to, you know, sit down and work out, well, if I go in half an hour, will I get there? And, you know, so it's, it's kind of, uh, in a sense, it's, uh, it's spoiling it. Yeah, I, I, I'm of that opinion. I wouldn't want to be the person making that decision about running the pools, but I've seen it on some of the pools I visit. For example, I was in Wangaratta Pool and... It was a moderately hot day. It was about 30 degrees, and that means the pool policy is that it closes at 6.30 if it's not over over 30 degrees. And a family with kids had just rocked up, and the father was having an argument with the lifeguard. He's saying, I've got all the kids in the car. I've got nowhere else to go. And you're telling me, because one degree difference, that you're closed. Mm. And mm. The, the lifeguard's, well, the policy is. Yeah. That's his job, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> you can assume that everyone in the car would go, well, I'm not coming next time. It's, a fun, it's funny, like, taking the long view... Uh, Coburg Pool is a great example because Coburg Pool is sited where it is because it's next to Coburg Lake, which used to be a big swimming place. It also used to be a big drowning place. Mm. So um, there was this was this is a it was a constant in the early part of the 20th century to see you know every, every summer there'd be a few people drowning, uh, and there was a big campaign to get people swimming, uh, and learning how to swim. A big campaign. Frank Beaurepaire was a huge sort of he was an Olympic swimmer. 
uh, in the early part of the 20th century was a huge advocate for uh, everybody should learn to swim, not just because it's good for you, I suppose, also because, you know, you can save other people if they fall in the water, all of this kind of stuff. People would flock to the water uh, and uh, in the summer. And so swimming pools come out of that to a certain degree and it's, it's kind of... Um, you know, it's it's addressing a, a national problem of of uh, people being unable to swim and yet always wanting to to get in the water. They, you know, they're funny. They're like lemmings, aren't they? But um, I don't know about that. <laughs> but the, um, it gets hot in this country, Dave. Ah, I hadn't noticed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and so and and yet now it's kind of it's being I guess branded as you know not quite a luxury, but it's you know it's just something that well, like you said, it's kind yeah. of. It's a palliative. It's addressing this uh, urgent need, but not much more. It's like an icy it's approach, like an icy pole. Like people seem to like this. I'm not sure why, but we'll. <laughs> yeah. And I've noticed with the drowning, Camp Aspeyshire in Northern Victoria, that that was one of the issues that the community. So they they had a review of the pools. They've got seven seasonal pools, and couple, I think two years ago, council decided they were going to close five of them. And they've since a lot of the little towns have started a Save Our Pool campaign, and that's one of the lines they've been running. Is that in places like Colburn Abbey, for example. And Lockington, these are irrigation towns. If the pools are not open, then the kids just uh, swim in the irrigation channel and many of them drown. So they said part of the reason people get involved is that they all know someone that's drowned or nearly drowned. Well, there's pretty serious serious consequences really, aren't there, from not having pools readily available? Because I I grew up close to the beach and it was really instilled in sort of me and everyone I knew from a young age that you need to, you know, be familiar with the water, you know, don't sort of, you know, respect the water in a way and and that kind of water safety was really a core part of growing up in that area because we spent so much time there but if you don't have a pool in the local community and you you go to the beach you go to a pool in later life then um you know drowning is much more of a possibility yeah and back backyard pools aren't really associated with learning to swim people just kind of float there and and having that kind of learn to swim program is dependent on having the I know at times it's been compulsory, but now I think it's not. I think it's coming back to being compulsory in primary schools. So that's, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the future of some of these pools might hold. But I wonder, I mean, as you've been alluding to, Liz, you've been swimming in a whole range of different regional pools all summer. And do you find a similar story as you go to them about the community sort of establishing these pools run by the council and then the price tag is starting to look pretty large to keep them open some of them are a little older but i would say that's the most common story it's an olympic pool a memorial pool they have that history of community involvement at some point in their past or present they have faced that decision about this cost too much and some of them for example golden square have been have gone one direction, being a community facility now, and others I go to, they're just Wangaratta Pool is going to close um, this year, and the other pool in Wangaratta closed last year and was replaced by a splash park. So I'm interested in them partly because they all are facing the same kind of challenges, but they all go in, in very different directions, and it really seems to come down to, I guess, a lot of things, but the community level of um, resources and motivation they have is part of that. Yeah, so we've got some communities that will have a pool and, and maintain that pool and be able to retain it and fight for it and other communities where it just goes the way Doesn't of, happen. I don't know, it's just for the ducks. Yeah, <laughs> if they're lucky. <laughs> Although mentioning Sunshine Pool for a while, that, that was a very long campaign. It actually closed for a while and now it's been rebuilt. But during part of its history, Sunshine Pool was a, a trout trout fishing facility 
So it was for the ducks. <laughs> and so all this, this research you've been doing over summer into regional pools, is it just a matter of kind of choosing research to suit your lifestyle? Do you have kind of a, an, an outcome? I take taxes at work, isn't it, Dylan? <laughs> just wondering how I can get on this. She's ticket. got a map, you know. She's pushing things map. off a map. To clarify, this isn't really research. Thank you for having me on for talking about basically my hobby. <laughs> so I haven't managed to think of a way to squeeze this into my <laughs> official profile yet. Though mm. David has written about swimming pools and he doesn't even like them. So well, he's doing the hard yard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, the whole the whole premise of this for me is I, I see a great value in these pools being there for recreation and bringing people together and, you for know, the, and for fitness and all this sort of stuff. But I suppose if so many are under threat, is it because we've changed our values that we don't think they're as valuable as we used to think they were? I would say unequivocally yes. I don't know, David's nodding. But well, you see, you know what, I think that there's there's a lot of weird things in this. I think people are generally speaking, and, you know, whether it's true in the, in the far-flung, you know, areas of Australia, you know, outside the major cities, but I think it's, it's, it's quite true that people are less inclined to want to hang out with other people. Uh, they don't know whether they're local people or not and they don't want to have to deal with them that much and there's all kinds of reasons why and people are super protective of their children more than they have ever been in their in the history of the world in the in the west and i think they are they're also very concerned about uh, strangers and and so on you know probably unreasonably so i think that that factors into for a lot of people's decisions when it comes to you know will i go to the pool with my kids or will I, you know, put the put the kids, you know, in front of the TV for the afternoon? That kind of stuff. I'm sure that that's a. So that's it's a not major just factor. money; it's culture. Cult, if you want to call that culture, yes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. We look forward to having you back in a month, Dave. And thanks, thanks so much, Elizabeth thanks, Taylor, for coming by. Um, Liz is with RMIT, and Dave is with Melbourne University, talking pools on the grapevine. With everything that's been going on around the world, you might not have heard over the summer that East Timor and Australia agreed to terminate the decade-old treaty which set out the division of revenue from the Greater Sunrise oil and gas fields as well as fishing rights and other issues. And the two governments instead have committed to sorting out maritime boundaries in the East Timor Sea by this September. But who's taking the biggest risk in this renegotiation and what's the likely outcome going to be for this really long-running David and Goliath battle? Uh, Fa- Father Frank Brennan has been a long-term supporter of East Timor is a professor of law at ACU and a Jesuit priest and he joins us on the phone and it's really great to have you with us um, Frank and I, I suppose it's worth reminding people about this treaty which uh, has set the boundary between Australia and East Timor for the past 10 years. Sure and great to be with you Julia and Dylan. Uh, maybe just to give a little bit of the background history if I may, uh, your listeners will recall that Indonesia had claimed occupation of East Timor back in 1975 and after that Australia actually gave what we call de jure recognition of that takeover so they could negotiate a deal with the Indonesians regarding the uh, maritime issues in the Timor Sea because it was known that that area was very rich in petrocarbons. But then after the Timorese got independence the first major treaty which was negotiated between Australia and Timor-Leste was the Timor Sea Treaty of 2002. Now, rather than finalising maritime boundaries, what the Timorese and Australian governments agreed to do was a bit similar to what Australia agreed to do with Indonesia regarding the Timor Sea. They said, 
will put the negotiation of the maritime boundary on hold and will set up an agreement for the exploitation of the resources where it's agreed between us that within the contested area we will share the resources, we'll give the benefit to East Timor of 90% and to Australia only 10%. Now, that worked well enough with a deposit which was known as Bayou Undan, which the aficionados among your listeners will know was a deposit just north of the median line, that is a line that you'd draw halfway between Timor and Australia, and you'd think that in terms of basic fairness, you'd start with something like a median line and then see whether or not that might be adjusted. Well, that worked well enough with Bayou Undan, but the really big issue, the sleeper, if you like, has been what's called the Greater Sunrise Deposit. Now, the Greater Sunrise Deposit, within what is agreed to be the contested area, uh, you've only got about 20% of Greater Sunrise lies within the contested area and 80% of Greater Sunrise fell within the Australian jurisdiction given that Australia and Indonesia had negotiated a boundary in relation to that area which was very favourable to Australia. So that was the situation as at 2002. Now, if I haven't lost listeners by now, going ahead to 2006, what we had was a situation where there was a lot of political uncertainty in East Timor at that time. In fact, you'll recall that um, Australian peacekeepers were back to, Austra to Timor in 2006. But at that time, what we had was a situation where there was a, a lack of appreciation by both sides as to how the Timor Sea Treaty could deal with Greater Sunrise. And so what the Australians were saying is, well, if you're not going to work with us according to the Timor Sea Treaty, we would prefer to put on hold the negotiation of any final maritime boundary for up to 50 years. And the Timorese said, well, what we want is really a greater share of the action in relation to Greater Sunrise. So cutting to the chase, what was agreed in the end was to split up the revenue 50-50 uh, for Greater Sunrise, rather than Timor only getting 18% and Australia 82%. And the other benefit for East Timor, which shouldn't be underestimated, is that Timor-Leste was given the right to exploit the fishing resources within the disputed area. Well, it's gone on and on and on, with Timor increasingly saying, look, we don't think CMATS was a good deal. We're very upset to learn that, and we allege that Australia was spying on our cabinet office when that was being negotiated, and we're going to take every attempt we can with international law to try and bring Australia back to the table to get rid of CMATS. Well, basically what's happened over the summer is finally Australia has agreed to scrap CMATS, and that's what the Timorese have wanted, therefore I welcome it. But you ask about what the risk is, well, you'll appreciate once CMATS goes, then we're back to the situation where the Timorese don't have exclusive use of the fishing resource within the disputed area. And at the moment, they're back to only an 18% share of the revenue in Sunrise. Now, what the Timorese say is their legal advice is 
they think the boundaries of the dispute area could be redrawn more favourable to them so they get the whole of Sunrise. While Australia says, we think the boundaries can be redrawn in a way that we get the whole of Sunrise. So they're very high stake, particularly for the team and it's, it's a very complex issue, Frank, but I think the way you, you outline it makes it kind of fairly clear to understand um, in that kind of 10 to 12-year timeline. But you, you mentioned, just to back, backtrack briefly, the allegations of espionage in those negotiations um, kind of that, that resulted in the CMATS treaty. Did those um, allegations and that news kind of prove as a, a catalyst, in your view, for the abandoning of CMATS? I think what it did, uh, perhaps fairly, Dylan, was it... It made worse the sense in the Timorese community generally that we're being dotted by our big brother neighbour. And so when the politicians in Timor were saying, well, look, on, is this actually a good deal? And what you've got to remember is there was a change of government then in East Timor. It'd be a bit like if, for example, you know, the Rudd government had negotiated a deal on something and then Abbott or Turnbull government comes along and says, oh, well, we think we were dudded, we want to get it fixed up and made something better. That sort of approach. So what we've now got is the present generation of political leaders in Timor, but particularly led by Zanana Guzmao, who has retained the ministerial responsibility for this area, saying... We think that the bugging of the officers shows that Australia wasn't acting in good faith and wasn't dealing with us reasonably, and therefore we just want to get rid of that deal. I think in part for two other reasons. One is, what you've got to remember, is once they got the revenue flow coming from Bail Dam, then even though they were a poor mendicant, nation state just emerging they had the money to employ good lawyers and the critical thing Dylan is you know they didn't ask lawyers like me they went to London and got the leading international lawyers in the world to advise them now those international lawyers have said to them we think the boundaries could be redrawn much more in your favor but the other critical political and economic thing was this the joint venturers led by Woodside and Shell always in relation to Sunrise, said, well, we'll look at what we think is commercially the best way to develop Greater Sunrise. Now, Sunrise is much closer to Timor than it is to Australia. But if you were going to develop it in Timor, which the Timorese wanted, you'd have to put a pipeline across the very deep Timor trough. But then more to the point, you would have to have enormous economic development on the south of Timor in order to produce the gas. Now, the joint venture has basically said, we think that is the commercially least viable option. Now, once the Timorese were told that, they said, well, hang on. We wanted Sunrise to really bankroll our economic development, particularly on the south of the island. If it's never going to do that, then why don't we just try and pull the pin and go for broke and see whether we can get control of the whole of Sunrise. Then we might be able to find 
a conglomerate of corporations who'd be willing to try and develop it with us here in Timor. So I think they're some of the considerations also. Yeah, there's a lot going on. We're talking with Father Frank Brennan about the maritime boundary and uh, at the now abandoned CMATS Treaty uh, that uh, was negotiated between Australia and East Timor for the East Timor Sea and, and the gas reserves there. And I wonder, Frank, uh, with regards to international precedents on these sort of median lines, uh, if they've engaged, you know, the best lawyers in the world with international law, will they be looking at precedents, say, between the UK and, and Norway and, and those kinds of areas where there's oil-rich area and it's between two countries with these kind of continental shelves involved and all that sort of stuff? Sure to be clear, but um, if I may say, there's there's another issue. I think the median line point is pretty much in Timor's favour, even though Australia keeps talking about the continental shelf right to the edge of the Timor trough. But let's, for present purposes, let's presume that the international lawyers in London and those who agree with them are right, that you'd go the median line approach. It's actually not the median line that causes the problem. What you've got to imagine is that there's the Australia-Indonesia border which is very close to Indonesia, there's then the gap, which we call the Timor Gap, which takes in these contested areas. Now, if you've drawn a median line in the gap, you'll understand that you've then got to be able to draw what we call lateral lines down from the Australia-Indonesia border down to the median line, which you've constructed between Australia and Timor. Now, the thing about the what's called the eastern lateral, which presently bisects sunrise, it at the moment has been drawn, as the international lawyers say, giving equal weight to all of the islands of Indonesia. And so they say a full median line basically cuts greater sunrise so that only 20% of it is closest to Timor. Now, what the international lawyers for Timor are arguing is that on precedence you would give lesser effect to some of the Indonesian islands and therefore swing the lateral to the benefit of East Timor so the whole of Greater Sunrise would come to Timor. Now, the difficult argument there is that really you've got to have Indonesia at the table and convincing them to give lesser effect to their islands. Now, the Indonesians have always claimed to be the classic archipelagic state and trying to get the Indonesians to agree to give lesser effect to their smaller islands when you come to draw the line, for example, for the territorial sea between Timor and Indonesia or the contiguous waters between Timor and Indonesia, to get the Indonesians to agree to a line which is more beneficial to the Timorese, that's going to be very difficult and will require reference to all of those international precedents that you've spoken about. And as, as you've mentioned, Frank, it is a gamble for East Timor and, and now potentially not involving just Australia and, and East Timor and two nations, but potentially three with Indonesia involved as well. Do, do you think it's feasible that there will be a resolution by September, as both Australia and East Timor have suggested? I think it's very unlikely. Um, I mean, they've said, let's work for September. I say good luck to them. But you've got to remember uh, three things. One, uh, Timor and Indonesia have not even yet finalised their land boundaries. Now, they've had, um, what, 15 years to do that, and the land boundaries are a cinch compared with the Timor Sea. Second, 
Timor and Indonesia have said they will commence negotiation of their maritime boundaries. But Indonesia quite sensibly has said, well, let's negotiate our maritime boundaries north of the island of Timor because that requires only two parties at the table. Now, I think even that will take a long time. And then the Indonesians have said, we'll come and look at south of Timor in the Timor Sea where you'll have three parties at the table. And to have the three parties at the table having finalised the land boundaries with Indonesia having finalised the northern maritime boundaries, I think it's going to take a very, very long time. It might be done by September, but I doubt that it'll be September 2017. And, uh, I mean, we, you know, apparently love an underdog here in Australia, and I wonder what your reading of the of the sort of community response to this negotiation is, Frank, whether we, you know, as a as individual members of the of the public, whether we're supporting East Timor here or, or whether we think, you know, Australia should have that larger share? Oh, no, I think the community sense has always been strongly behind the Timor 8. I think the real significance of the summer announcement is there's been a change in what I would call the entrenched Canberra attitude, where you had the senior bureaucrats responsible for all this, uh, convincing governments, both Labor and Liberal, that they should not make any changes. Now, the Labor Party changed its policy a year or so ago. I think the community is solidly behind the Timorese, but I think where you then get to is the community in Australia saying, look, if the Timorese want to renegotiate this, then why not agree to it? But then comes the question, well, once you've abandoned CMATs and you've got to renegotiate, there are big gambles at play now, I say, well, that's what self-determination is about. The Timorese leadership is prepared to take the gamble. I say good luck to them. Should they win, I say it's not just a matter of setting boundaries according to who's poor and who's rich. It has to be according to the principles of international law. So let's wait and see where the line falls. Thank you so much for um, joining us here on Triple R, uh, Frank. And it sounds like we might uh, get you back on later in the year to, to hear how those negotiations look like they're proceeding to do so and thank you very much for your interest and uh, that's Father Frank Bre- uh, Brennan he's a Jesuit priest, a long term supporter of uh, East Timor and a professor of law at ACU and uh, talking there about the now um, ne- uh, renegotiations around the boundaries in the Timor Sea and uh, a, a David and Goliath battle that it sounds like there's going to be another Goliath involved with, right. with Indonesia as well. And so you can read a lot more about uh, what Frank has to say about that at the uh, Eureka Street as well, he's uh, written some really fascinating articles on that very topic. Talking ATARs now and university entry, it's the beginning of another year, uh, academic year, and we're still though waiting to hear how the government might reform the higher education sector or how university admissions can become more transparent and consistent. Uh, There's a growing number of people calling for more information to be available to students about alternate pathways to university and tertiary study as well beyond the ATAR. And one of those voices is Shane Duggan. He's Vice Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow at the Centre of Education and Training and Work in the Asian Century. Uh, at the School of Education at RMIT and um, I started saying that before I realised how long it was. Shane, welcome to Triple R. It's really great to have you here and as I mentioned earlier that we've heard a lot about the need to reform higher education around fees but also around equity and transparency around uh, university entry and I I wonder where you see we're at with um, I suppose higher education reform and the need for it in Australia. Um, Hi, Hi. nice to be here. Um, I I think in some ways we've come a really long way 
over the last year. So, you know, it was only around this time last year that um, Fairfax released their very scathing report saying that lots of people were being admitted below the advertised cut-off scores and that this was a pretty widespread practice across Australia. So within that 12-month period, we've had a full review. We've had the government see the recommendations of that review. And then we've also had them, uh, Simon Birmingham, say that they're going to take up the recommendations of that review. What that actually means in practice for people who are um, planning for entrance into university next year, so they start, they're doing their final year of studies this year, we don't really know on the ground what that's going to look like. But the conversation from when I started really looking into this and, and writing about this you know, 12, 18 or two years ago now, um, the conversation has moved and so now we're just waiting to see what, what the reforms actually look like on the ground. And, and I wonder, I mean, uh, on the surface, letting people in below the official cut-off score, that maybe there's some positives there, people that wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity are, are getting to go to university, but the numbers show up that people with a lower ATAR, say around 50 or, or 55 or something like this, if they're admitted into a, a course that they're not really able to, to complete or do well in, they end up with fees, but no degree, they're going to drop out. So this is the concern, isn't it, that we're letting in people that really don't have a chance of succeeding? Yeah, and, and, and I think when we're talking about admitting people below the advertised cutoff, that, that's, a, that's a very problematic process. Um, but what goes along with that is, regardless of what that cutoff is, the lower you go in terms of ATAR, the more the more additional kinds of things people tend to have. So these people who are being ad- admitted below the ATAR only cutoff, it's a pretty complicated space. But these people who are being admitted, the universities are normally seeking additional information, or there's other thi- there's other factors that are informing that. So some of those young people who maybe didn't do so well in terms of their ATAR will be people who are from very low socioeconomic backgrounds. They might come from areas that don't have very good university representation. Um, they might be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. They, they tend to be overrepresented in the, that sort of middle rank. So when it comes to those, those lower scores, there's a whole range of factors, you know, a lot of social factors, a lot of economic factors, a lot of cultural factors that might play into why those scores exist. And so some of the, the, the programs that run to help to get these people into university are, are a good thing. But really what the government has, has started, or what this review has, has found, is that a lot more needs to be done to make sure that they're being provided with really clear information and a lot more needs to be done to support these young people once they get into their course, as, as you say, so they don't end up with a huge amount of fees and no degrees. And I've read recently that um, completion rates are, are a bit of an issue as well with around a third of students not completing their degrees within six years. So what's going on there, do you think? Is it a matter of people kind of entering into degrees that maybe they're not sure about or maybe not being supported while, while they're at university? How can we kind of um, conceptualise that? Yeah, well, I, I think you've hit it, hit it on the head, actually, that there's, there's a number of things going on. We know that for people who are maybe, who maybe are not as high-achieving, um, they might have struggles actually dealing with the course matter. We know that for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, they have a lot of additional factors that play into their, their ability to commit to their studies. So a lot of these people might be holding down effectively full-time work in casualised employment. They might have caring responsibilities. They might have huge issues with commuting to university. They might have issues with affording things like textbooks. And, and you know, the, all of those factors that I think many of us who have been around this space and you know living in the inner city we know these people who have really struggled with their degrees and and in the end they have to make a, a pragmatic choice and they say i can't do this right now and what we know is that 
people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, when they do drop out of their degree or they, they, they defer their degree, they are much more likely not to go back They're, rather than people who say, you know what, I'm actually, this isn't working for me at the moment, I'm going to go away for a while. If they're from a higher socioeconomic background, they're likely to come back and finish eventually, maybe not that degree, but they're likely to be mobile in their higher education choices. But as you go down to more lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds, that just doesn't happen. People go into work, they go into sort of low-skilled low work and they stay there. Um, and, that, and that's obviously a huge problem. And I wonder how uh, accountable universities are for dropout rates. Yeah, um, well, that was one of the big concerns of Simon Birmingham is that universities uh, are very, very good, um, you know, and I don't want to brand them all in the same kind of brush, but they're very, very good at, at, at taking the money and they're very, very good at signing students up. And, and perhaps one of the big criticisms is that they're perhaps not very good at being accountable for students who don't complete. So one, some of the more controversial recommendations that has, have been coming through and circulating around the um, Higher Education Standards Panel review were around um, how do we make universities a bit more accountable for who they sign up and how do we make them accountable for the money that they're getting? That's ultimately, in many cases, government money. Um, so we're really just talking about government-supported places here. And, and that this, we're talking at one end of the university kind of journey, I suppose, the entry side of it, and, and we can keep talking about ATAR and transparency around cut-offs and the like, but then there's the other end as well of when students finish university and a lot of unis, you know, I see all the big posters up around town about, you know, the world is yours and all this sort of stuff about where you're going to go next. But uh, how, how much do we know about how uh, beneficial, I suppose, university qualifications are? for students that do complete? Yeah, well, um, there's the Foundation for Young Australians have been doing magnificent research on this for a really long time and compiling together a lot of research and producing some really good stuff that's for everybody. I'm saying that as a recommendation. Go and get it and have a look at some of their infographics and so forth. But um, the trend is it's regardless of what qualification you have, um, it's taking longer to get into full-time employment and that goes from apprenticeships through to um, vocational ed and TAFE through to university and higher education. Obviously, high, you still tend to, on a broad scale, fare better if you go on to higher education across across the life course. You, you, you're more likely to be in full-time employment by the age of 24, by the age of 27, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, a, a colleague of mine last year was writing that there is a depreciating return on um, on higher education investment by individuals. So um, it's taking longer to get into full-time employment. Young people are now likely to have around 17 jobs and five careers in their life. Is That's what the research sort of says. And, and that's pretty consistent globally. It's actually, you know, in all OECD-style countries. So um, there are huge questions around the value of higher education at the moment. And one of the big shifts that's happening in that space and the research in that space is starting to think about um, skills rather than degrees as being terminal for particular jobs. So we need to stop thinking an engineering degree qualifies you to be an engineer. It gives you a skill set that helps you to participate in a particular area of the, of the economy. But that is, you know, that, that link between universities and business is one that universities are constantly trying to offer more and more internship programs and say we're really connected to industry but business is saying well we're a moving space and and you know you're taking four years to qualify these people and and maybe they don't have the skill sets that we need in the market at the other end so um, there's a lot of really big questions at both ends around who we admit to higher education but also for individuals to make that judgment around how valuable it's going to be for them in the journey that they want to take which is likely to have 
multiple, multiple engagements with higher education across their life course. And it can be a really confusing time for students who are about to enter university for the first time, which, you know, can be a really exciting time of life as well. But when you're being bombarded with these marketing marketing campaigns, kind of selling the dream without kind of explaining the process and what you need to do in that to get where you might want to be, you can kind of understand how people might get lost in the midst of that. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, think about how that might compound for a family, an entire family, for whom they have no history of higher education. So, you know, young people who are first in family to go on, that it's a really confusing time. Their, their parents don't have a direct experience of it, so there's no, there's no consistent advice there. There's just reading the materials. And, and as you say, you know, you, you, you walk around Melbourne or any major city and you're absolutely bombarded with higher education. You know, the future's yours, um you know, bringing great minds together and, you know, all, all of these slogans that really mean nothing, but they're, they're very persuasive. And there's a lot of people who want to sign, if you're, if you're you know, if you, if you go and have a look, there's a lot of, a lot of people who want to sign young people up to, to higher education, and, but the information is not particularly consistent. And that, that was one of the big findings of, the, of the, the Higher Education Standards Panel review, was that the information is really inconsistent um, that it's very hard for people to navigate and understand exactly what's required to get into particular courses, but also what that course is going to look like once they're inside. So there's, there's a lot that can be done all over the sector. Yeah, a lot of change. Uh, we, we're speaking with Shane Duggan uh, all about higher education and uh, ATARs and, and I suppose the benefit of higher education to a student's um, life beyond the classroom as well. And uh, um, Shane, you've uh, looked at the benefits, I suppose, and the good things about the ATAR, the tertiary entry number. I suppose the ATAR is not so relevant to students that don't go to university, but uh, it it sort of is a good indicator, isn't it, about who might go on and, and, and succeed in higher education, but it's also maybe a better indicator of those that aren't going to succeed. And I, I wonder, you know, when you look at the ATAR, do you want to see it go? A, a lot of people are calling for it to be, to be abolished and we don't need it anymore. It should be on interview and personal merit and things like this. Where, where do you come, come on that argument? Um. I, I will always, you know, it's, it's the lefty in me, I will always toe an equity line with this. And I, and I say, whatever the system is, we need to be thinking about where, where might conscious and unconscious biases be coming in. So the problem that we have with interviews, if we had an interview-only system, is that we know that interview is not a fair process. We know that interview is swayed by so many social and cultural factors. If we're looking at things like portfolios, well, then we give rise to what happens at the, the Ivy League colleges in the United States where you have people who are paid to help students put together their portfolio. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a form of, of uh, economic and social selection. So there's some things I really like about the ATAR, all things being equal. If we, if we pretend there's no difference in schools, and there is a difference in schools, and that's a different debate. But what I like about the ATAR is that it's, it's, from the university perspective, it's blind. They don't know where you went to school. Um, now, that's a good thing. That's, that's a really nice thing for equity. What we do know about the ATAR, though, is that high-performing high schools are very, very good at producing high-performing, high ATARs. Now, that's, that's not a random distribution. That's something that is cultivated within, within the system, and a lot of people have written on how unequal that system is, and, and then we get into debates about school funding and Gonski and things like that. But... Um, it's, for me, it's not a question of whether we have the ATAR or not. It's what would be there in its place if we, if we weren't to have it and would that have us any further along the equity line? Would it make selection fairer 
or would it make selection more unfair? Um, so in all of the suggestions that I've seen in, you know, in terms of interview portfolio, um, there's a few other ones around um, taking subject scores. I, I wonder whether they get us any further along in this discussion or whether maybe the answer is a constellation of those. So we have the ATAR, but then we also, for specific courses, might have specific requirements. The, the biggest point is how do we communicate that to young people and schools and families so that they actually have an understanding of what it is that's going to be required to get into a medicine degree, if that's what they're interested in, to get into engineering, if that's what they're interested or in. Or just anything, because anything, we know that yeah. any post-school qualification is what students now need. Yeah, exactly that. And so we need we need a lot more consistency in how that information is applied. And, uh, you know, before we were speaking on air, we were talking anecdotally about people missing date cutoffs that they weren't advertised on the page of the website but they were somewhere that that's a problem that's a huge problem and that for me is the, the first problem once we address that one around getting consistent information to people then we can talk about improving the selection process at the other end um, but at the moment we're not doing either of those and one other aspect which um i'm kind of almost reluctant to mention because it's an all, a whole other issue of its own but is the the workforce within universities dealing with more and more students and the casualization that's gone on over the past years which means that often tutors lecturers might not engage that much with the students throughout the life course of their degree from subject to subject because they themselves have to move on for different work yeah, and that, and that itself, you know, that is a sector-wide problem in, in higher education around um, teaching and research funding. Um, you know, no university is immune to that discussion. And, and as you say, what, what's happen, happening increasingly, even at top, top universities, is that um, young people are being taught by, by very much casualised staff and, and, and they're, they're not, you know, the, the branding is saying access to these great professors who are doing this fantastic research, world-leading, so on and so forth. Often those people, just through the way that the structure is within particular faculties and schools and so forth, the students are so disconnected from those people and, and they're being taught by people who are, who are being worked to the bone in, in a teaching capacity. And, you know, that's the other side of the debate, but um, we won't go into Another that Another time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're working at a university and, and thank you so much for bringing your knowledge in to share with us. Uh, Shane Duggins with RMIT and talking about the ATAR and its value and also um, the work, I suppose, that to make university admission processes clearer for students and kind of wrapping support around those students that need it. There's a lot of work still to be done and hopefully we'll get some more announcements this year, Shane, that uh, clears it up for us a little bit, makes that journey a bit easier for people. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.